1: Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna.
0: And welcome back. We are doing this. We're back. We should say the name of our podcast. (laughs) Welcome back to Show Your Work. Hooray. Thank you so much for your emails asking when we're coming back. We had to get new hardware. Here's some show your work work. It's true. (laughs) We have a fancy new recording machine, which is very exciting. It's maybe a little bigger than an iPhone, but it's actually pretty fucking small compared to like, I I feel like we're going, what is my analogy here? Um, I don't know, like one of those big IBM computers. And then now we're down to like a device. You
1: mean like in Mad Men, uh, where they had the big room (laughs) full of computer? From typewriters
0: to word processors to tablets to whatever. It's true. We're very fancy. Yeah, we're hoping, I mean, we have plans. We have work plans for Show Your Work. We're hoping… That we can travel Show Your Work sometimes. We're also super
1: looking forward to having some guests on Show Your Work, some awesome people who are fans, people who you guys are fans of. Uh, Basically, we're going to take advantage of anybody who's ever been nice to us and uh, have them pop up here and tell uh, tell us about their part of show
0: business. I'm super excited about that. The common denominator is that they also are obsessed and passionate and find work sexy, and we find their work sexy, and we find them talking about their work sexy. So all of it is, you know, continuing our crusade to rebrand work to be super hot. Which it is. And that was why it was so hard to take
1: uh, the break. We were happy for the break and Yeah, never more popular than when you guys were like, when are you coming back? But there have been a number of things this summer that we were like, oh, if the podcast was on, we would be talking about this.
0: Yep. There were like articles that came up and you sending it to us saying like, oh my God, you should talk about this on show your work. And so we've saved all those up. All of them, a lot of them are going to be referenced in upcoming segments. Um, in particular, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be examining in a big way how show business has changed over the last year. I mean, you cannot deny. There has been um, cataclysmic or maybe not cataclysmic enough changes. Um, so we want to we wanna deep dive into all of that and we'll be referencing stuff you thought we missed, but we didn't. Homework has been done. But for this week, you know, the work sometimes presents itself, right? So… How lucky are we? <laughs> we decided we would come back this week, and we come back to the news of a royal baby during a royal tour.
1: So let's be clear. You woke me up at 5.08 on Monday morning with the text, well, of course they announced it at this time, uh, meaning, of course, that Harry and Meghan, who are having their baby, were announcing it right before they take on their tour tour. This is where I'm going to throw to you. Their tour is how many countries? 14 countries? 600 weeks? <laughs> what is it? Four.
0: Uh, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Tonga. For how many days? Oh, well, now you got me. I did not memorize the date the number of dates, but in and around, like, two and a half weeks or so. Look, it's not just you. I feel like every second Instagram story has
1: lined this up by number. Yeah. Um. You know, four countries, 14 days, 17,000 outfits, uh, meals by the dozen. There are those kinds of things that are, uh, everybody's very excited. Yeah. And then they
0: said the thing. And then they said the thing. And… You know, thanks to those of you who emailed us um, to talk about Harry and Meghan, not only them, but the work that goes into a royal tour. Like, this is is what we wanted to dig deep into or at least start to unpack. Not only what Harry and Meghan will be doing, but the work that went into getting them there. What was decided, how it was decided, and how it will change. Okay, so let's talk about this. One thing I
1: realized this week is that… I'm pretty well versed in the royals, but compared to a lot of our social circle, I am a relative newbie because some people are super educated here. So beyond just seeing the people and meeting the people, is there a reason behind a royal tour? What's the goal? If there was one of those papers where it says uh, objective at the top, what is the objective of the royal tour?
0: Well, here on this tour to, let's say, starting in Australia, that is a country member of the Commonwealth. So, the Queen is the head of the Commonwealth still. She uh, will be handing those responsibilities over to Prince Charles. Um, Prince Charles has designated that his small, immediate, working royal family, which consists of him... Um, Camilla, his sons, their spouses, and when they're old enough, his grandchildren will be carrying on this work. I mean, if we want to get into an aside, that's where Prince Andrew is all pissy because his two daughters, Eugenie and Beatrice, are not considered working royals, and supposedly this was the decision of Prince Charles. He was like, no, we're going to keep the team small, and your girls aren't part of it. I love, by the way, how you breezed by, oh, the Queen's going to hand it off to Prince
1: Charles. (laughs) Maybe not. And also how you breezed past a little dig the other day that I don't pronounce Eugenie properly. No, I said you do. Uh, That is one of the names you do don't mangle, like Bellatrix. Readers, (laughs) I would like an opinion on whether or not that was uh, the way that read. (laughs) Anyway, they're basically Goodwill tours. That's it. Yes? There's no trade being discussed. There's no negotiation happening.
0: And visiting charities, visiting with people who are doing good charitable work, supporting their philanthropic causes. Um, but yeah, by and large, they are ambassadors of the Queen, of the Royal Family, to the, in this case, to the Commonwealth countries, to make sure the Commonwealth is strong. Um, You know, certain countries who are part of the Commonwealth, it's not like they're bound to it, right? Like, they get to decide. They can leave the Commonwealth if they want to. So for the Commonwealth to exist and for it to be strong, you want those countries to be like, oh, yeah, we still want to, like, be in this club. So it's a performance
1: review is what you're saying. (laughs) This is the royals going to the countries in the Commonwealth. And I bring this up partly because I know we have a lot of awesome listeners who are not in the Commonwealth uh, and who don't necessarily know what Canadians have been raised with going like, oh yeah, she's kind of the boss, but she's not the boss. In order for it to survive, they're basically slapping hands and kissing babies so that people will continue to give them their massive stipend
0: people have to buy in to be in the Commonwealth. They have to. And so, yeah, this is recruitment or stewardship. Like in fundraising, stewardship is a a word we, we use a lot. So when you steward a donor, so I used to work in fundraising. When you steward a donor, it's an existing donor and you are basically there to say thank you all the time to the donor to, you know, give the donor updates. Here's where your money went. Here's how we spent it this year. If you support a scholarship, here are the number of students that you um, supported, your gift supported. And so you are stewarding, you're always stewarding that donor towards another gift, another donation. So for, like, I use the word stewardship here because these are members of the Commonwealth and you're telling them, hey, this is what your return in being a member is. When you're a member of the Commonwealth, you get me coming with my pregnant wife to your country, and um, me spending several weeks here, and as you said, slapping hands, shaking babies, taking photo ops. Probably not shaking babies. Or, sorry, slapping hands, kissing babies, um, taking photos, making your country look good, um, hopefully increasing tourism, and I'm kind of here to fulfill that kind of, that promise. Okay,
1: so let's discuss then the elephant in the room. Obviously, we want to discuss the whole tour and what mm-hmm. it takes. I love this idea. And it's something that doesn't happen often enough. Uh, remember years ago, Emma Watson kind of tried to highlight the, the work that went behind the Beauty and the Beast tour and yeah. all the people. I'm years so... ago,
0: Duane, it was like last year.
1: Oh my God, it feels <laughs> it was like 2017. An
0: age. I'm a hundred.
1: <laughs> but I love that kind of stuff. But the elephant in the room, of course, is now the world knows that there are two and a half royals on this tour. Right. Right. It is going to be so many admiring shots of the soon-to-be-seen bump and people looking admiringly and Meghan nodding as she takes advice from the ladies who are talking to her about
0: whatever. Uh, It's a a massive undertaking. It's a massive undertaking. And… Let's be honest though, if you're the Invictus Games, if you're Australia, if you're the Royals, you're like, this is amazing. Oh, it's a jackpot. It's an it's first of all, it was already amazing because these two are newlyweds. Their wedding was super popular. They've only been married five months. Um, everybody wants to know about them. So it was already amazing baseline for those two to go. Yeah, and I would add to your list, they
1: are like charisma gold. They yes. do not have that thing around them that is restraint that is reserved. They just get in and do things
0: and allow two-year-olds to steal their popcorn. Check, check, check to all of that. And then they decide, you know, as soon as they arrive to Australia, they're like, oh, hey, by the way, we're having a baby. So all the partners in this, right, everybody who's invested, they're happy. They're like, already we got our money's worth. Even more photos are going to be taken. Even more people are going to be writing about this. Even more people are going to be like, yay Invictus Games. Yay, like, wounded, injured servicemen and women who are competing. Yay to the courage of their hearts and, and you know, the commitment that they've given to this um, endeavor. And also, if you're Australia, you're like, fuck yeah. Like, all eyes are on us right now. Literally all eyes today, especially, or this week especially, everybody's looking." So. All the players are happy. So from that work perspective, Harry and Meghan did their job.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, now I'm thinking about if you are a, a a royal photographer, perhaps one who's been sanctioned or not, you know, now I'm like, okay, they're going to Australia, they're going to Fiji. Who gets the shot of like newly pregnant Meghan in a bikini? Like, that's the premium. Right. Maybe that's prurient and, and
0: base of me to think that, but come on, who are we kidding? This feeds all levels. And you're right. Like, it wouldn't be a sanctioned royal photographer who would get that bikini photo, but it would be the local paparazzi. They're going to make money too, right? Like, they're not it's officially… It's a trickle-down economy. <laughs> exactly. Trickle-down economy, yes. They're not officially accredited. They're around, and they're going to try and, like, get photos that, yeah, the officially accredited people won't be able to because they'll be kicked off the tour right away. Right. So
1: part of this, of course, is there's officially sanctioned photographers. There's officially sanctioned caterers, uh, wardrobe stylists, everything you can think
0: of. Who hires them all? Is there a title for this person? There are titles for these people. Um, It starts… Months ago, right? It started months ago when they would have decided that this was going to be their first tour. Um, And it was a no-brainer because Invictus 2018 in Australia had been already decided, like last year. So, sure, back then, maybe we didn't know that Harry would propose and they would be married in May, but like the moment that he proposed, this was going to probably be it. So then… There's the step of sending the team out to do like a recon mission, so that would be um, Prince Harry and Kensington Palace, the communication staff, the comms team. They would go, and they did go a few weeks ago. Well, first, like for a preliminary trip to really like develop a big, bigger list of places and things that they could be doing. Task force. If That's you right. Will. I just like saying task force. <laughs> then they bring all that back and then it's edited down by another team, vetted, then they go back, and that most… When you say vetted, you mean yeah. like, no, that's not appropriate, or that happened on
1: last season of Will and Kate, who <laughs> are Australia.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, they would, um, they would say, no, that's not appropriate, no, someone's already done that already, or yes, they did that already, and we should go back. Right. Right? Or here are some potential issues with that. Um, here's what I'm I'm feeling uncomfortable with. And that's cleared through both KP and BP. Pardon me. KP and BP. Let's go back. Kensington Palace. Yeah. Which is like Will, Harry, Kate, Megan, their comms team, like their staff. And then, of course, Prince Charles has his own staff out of Clarence House. And then Buckingham Palace, that is the Queen's staff. I like how you say, of
1: course, you know. But here's part of why I'm asking, uh, partly because I had no idea what those acronyms were, right. but the other reason is because if it was, if we were talking about celebrities as we so often are, mm-hmm. then you say it's planned, it's vetted, it's whatever, and yeah. then it's run by their team. And I would say, okay, well then whoever it is, Julia Roberts yeah. then gets veto power, right? Yes. She gets to say yes, no, bing, bong, right. whatever. right. But these guys are also kind of public servants in a weird way while also being royal and famous. So who is… who says what is important for them to do Mm -hmm. or who decides if something is or is not too gauche?
0: Well, here's… that's a great… like, that's a great question and I think that this is my closest analogy. Let's say um, that a film studio is promoting a film and your star is in the film, then… Ahead of the rollout of the film, the studio is gonna have a big marketing strategy. Here are the countries we're gonna go to for red carpets. Here are the press engagements we're hoping to hit. Um, and here's who we want on those trips. And then that bigger plan will be presented, let's say, by the studio, then to the star's individual publicists mm-hmm. and managers. And then it'll go through another layer of vetting, like, no, Scarlett doesn't want to go to Bulgaria. No, if this is like an Avengers tour, for example. No, Robert will only go overseas. He doesn't want to do UK. Right. Yeah.
1: But if it was, that's fine when it's the Avengers and they have all the money and all the stars. Yeah. But if it was, oh, I don't know, but there are no little movies anymore, but let's just say that it was uh, Eighth Grade, one of my favorite movies this summer. Yes. Uh, and they say, okay, we're doing this. Elsie uh, Dinsmore, the star, does not get to say, oh, I'm not going here or going there. She's going because they mm-hmm. said so because she's marketing the movie.
0: That's yes? Right. Right. And Elsie Dinsmore doesn't have that accumulated capital, you know. A phrase I learned from you, right? Exactly. So I would say the equivalent here, though, if we're talking royals to celebrities, is Avengers. <laughs> like, I would say that the royals probably can exercise the same amount can exercise the same amount of veto as R. D. J. and Scarlett Johansson in terms of like what they will and won't do, and what they're willing and willing not to do. That said probably Prince Harry and Royals, are a little bit more amenable. What you're saying is if there's
1: something they don't want to do, that's when they call Beatrice and Eugenie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I would also say that the minute they're on the ground, there's less room for, no, I, I'm, i you know what, I know you have me here junketing at this hotel from 9 to 5, but I've decided today I want to leave at 4. Royals aren't doing that. No,
1: there's no. zero not coming out of your trailer. No. There's once you show up, you are on
0: show. Now, to be fair, I guess, if we have to, to celebrities, when they're cutting a junk a day from like five o'clock down to four o'clock, they're just cutting, not just because I'm one of these people, but they're cutting out reporters. For royals, if they're cutting an hour of time, that hour is probably a charity or a conservation, like a conservation outfit or like outfit meaning organization or relief workers um, or hospital workers, like they're you know leaving people who are not just reporters. Something in the that dirt. has been—they're cons-
1: still human beings. Yeah, but something that has been carefully considered and mm-hmm. is worth their precious time. That's right. Right. Okay. So fine. So now it's all vetted and lined up and arranged, and a million people go and what bulletproof the rooms and and choose the 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 food that's going to be served? Like, what do you, how much do you think
0: happens in advance? Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. Like, I mean, I, I would give it the equivalent of, you know, when people, you guys out there, um, I know some of you, your jobs involve event planning, wedding planning, um, conference planning, all of those, selecting menus. Yeah. As much as like a wedding planner, pre-selects what is on the menu for the bride and groom or the bride and bride or the groom and groom, it's the same thing. Like, it's all pre-selected, it's vetted, it's sent back to England, what do you think of this? Okay, this is going to go, that's no problem. I mean, we saw a lot of this on The Crown. Yeah, saw it
1: on The Crown or uh, the, on this side of the pond. A great book that I read this summer was Inside the Oval, uh, book by Beck Dory Stein, uh, which all takes place on press tours on Air Force One, but it's not fiction. Mm -hmm. It's all about real trips that she took while being on the stenographer staff uh, with President Obama. But total work porn. Oh, it's amazing. The work and the number of people involved and the distinctness of each of their jobs is fascinating, is very exciting. The difference, of course, with the Royals is you're not supposed to see or know who any of those people are.
0: Yeah. They're exactly, they're supposed to remain nameless. Um, we do know that, for example, Megan and Harry have a staff of like, what, 10 or 12 people. I don't think that's super big, do you? I
1: mean, not with the amount of work that you're talking about, but to think about 10 or 12 people to always be cloaked in never being recognizable, to never be seen. I did go through a period this summer. In and around the wedding where I started reading some of those memoirs published by like former Diana bodyguards and things. Yeah. And it's a whole lot of always being there while being completely and permanently anonymous. Maybe this is my own hubris, but I would find that to be an interesting challenge, especially because you're always on their beck and call. Like I don't think you're kicking back by the pool ever and being like, oh, we're off duty now. Yeah. Because there always could be a thing.
0: Well, I think I said this during our Royal Wedding post-Post-Royal Wedding podcast, where I said to you that that morning I was on the grounds of Windsor Castle, right? I had toured the chapel just like moments before the wedding started, and the tour was given by the com staff. And do you remember me saying that they could not have been more chill? That nobody was fucking barking at anybody else? And nobody was like speaking to anybody else like they were like cattle? Now that you mention it. And um, and no one was, like, being, like, a clipboard sergeant and fucking making you feel like at any moment you'd be tossed? Well, that you have to
1: unpack. And I think we're going to get to this a little later in mm-hmm. the podcast, but uh, what you're referring to in clipboard sergeant is when there are heavily attended events in entertainment where there's even a whiff of somebody famous-ish anywhere nearby, there are really uptight, angry-looking, often women, but not always, with sort of very pinched faces and expensive handbags Yeah, uh, looking at you very coldly and barking into headsets. There's always a
0: fucking clipboard.
1: Um, I'm really surprised they haven't switched to, you know, iPads or something. But yes, it's always a clipboard.
0: There's always a fucking clipboard. They always talk to you like you're shit, Mm -hmm. um, that you probably should be so grateful Um, that you're there, and again, it was not like that at all at the royal wedding. These people understand that if they act like fucking Hollywood douchebags, it's not a good look for who they're representing. I'm not sure why Hollywood publicists don't understand that, but everything is very civilized and polite. Like, at no point did I feel like when I was being spoken to by members of the royal comms team um, on May 19th, did I feel like these people were assholes. Everything was so conversational. It was the first time I'd met these people, and it was like, oh, hey, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just stand here. We'll come get you. No worries. And this is this is where it's like there were a few jokes cracked. Like, nobody was a prick. And... So on this royal tour, you're not going to get these people who represent Harry and Meghan walking around like clipboard sergeants, speaking to people in Australia and New Zealand and Fiji and Tonga like they're subhuman. Right. And
1: so, you know, one assumes part of that is because they're going to be fine. They have prepped enough. There's enough work. Everybody has sewn weights into the hems of the dresses, which is a thing that I love that happens. Everything has been dotted and crossed and so
0: forth. So in theory, they're chill because everything's going to be fine, right? Yes. And also, like, I think, listen, as, I don't know, Mary Sunshine, I think that's your expression, which I've stolen. As Mary Sunshine as this sounds or as "the" as this sounds, that thing, like, keep calm and carry on, it's actually programmed into them. So then what do you
1: think is the thing that would make a ruffle be shown. Because the thing about the clipboard Nazis and the reason they exist is because, as we know, people can go nuts in the face of the famous. 99.994% of people are totally normal and friendly and fine and point whatever 6% of people who show up to see famous people go banana boat. And that's what makes everybody tense. So what would be a situation? Because we know it's not going to be like a security incident. Obviously, that stuff is all checked and, and dog sniffed to a tee. Yeah. So
0: what would constitute a problem, do you think? I'm not sure because I've I've seen like the crying fans. I've seen like the ones that have been sunburned. And waiting out in the summer sun for six days to catch a glimpse of the carriage going by at the wedding. I've seen them delirious. I've seen them weeping. I've seen them proposing. I've seen them want to take their shirt off. Sorry, proposing? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like, I mean, Harry's been proposed to, I don't know how many times.
1: Oh, I thought you meant like people were so inspired by the carriage going by. that they proposed to each other. On the spot. No, I haven't
0: seen that. Um, Get on it, somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, like, I've seen that, but it doesn't seem to rattle them, like, those aren't the people they're worried about. I guess for them, the the, and this is telling, the true enemy to them are their family or the people who can hurt them inside the castle. It's they're never worried about people outside the castle. They're working worried about the fucking mole inside the castle, the aunt, the uncle, the like the racist, the racist, the the fly off the handle dad. You know, those are the people that are the biggest concerns, not the fans. Right. So now we get to
1: it. Your point, even though these are not celebrities and they'll always show up to do the job and so forth, is what happens when there's a, you know, a nude in Vegas scandal or a, uh, I don't know what, a toe-sucking situation or something.
0: And it's throughout history, right? Like, even if you look throughout history of, like, kings and queens and, like, I don't know, usurping and whatnot, it always comes from inside. It's like the brother who stabs you in the back. It's like, I don't know, your trust in general. Um, It's never someone from outside the gates. Well, then now I'm going
1: to steal a line from your book and point out that this is fine, this tour. This is all kind of a cakewalk because all these people are in training for when George Cambridge is 12 years old and on one of these tours, right? Mm -hmm. When they unleash him uh, to, I don't know what… Do something, when they unleash him to do something completely sanctioned and he goes off the grid. Like, that's going to be
0: the real problem. (laughs) That's going to be the real problem. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, they are, they seem always unrattled. If they are going to get rattled, no one's ever going to see it, Um, you know, and yes. And I think that that energy gets, like, it drifts out. So, on these tours, sure, they're going to meet their person on site in Australia, in New Zealand in the other countries they're visiting. Um, And if there are spontaneous moments, like, I don't know, someone pours tea wrong or splashes it. Like, it's not like we're going to hear about it or if we do hear about it, they're going to laugh it off. These are not things that they sweat. Right. In Hollywood, they sweat those fucking things.
1: It's true. That would be a big, big deal. But no, the only only thing that can go wrong is that the queen gets upset, ultimately, right?
0: Yes. And again, like… She doesn't show her upsetness in that way. But she would to them. Surely you're going to get lectured by someone
1: who will be lectured by someone who will, if you piss off the queen, it's going to roll down to you. Oh, for sure. I'm saying, like in your cubicle with your, I don't know what, personalized teacup being taken away. It does make me think about what would be the qualification for a job like this. Like, you know, the interview uh, and the etiquette and the ankle crossing and who you would have to be to take on this kind of a task. They must have a Myers-Briggs test or something to figure out people who are suited to this kind of thing. For, yeah. For temperament,
0: for sure. Like, you and I could never make it. No, because <laughs> we like attention too much. <laughs> we use too many OMGs and gasp at like the smallest things. These are people who are not gaspers. You know you and I will be sitting side by side in an airport lounge, everybody's quiet, you're on your phone, and all of a sudden I… like, all I hear is, <gasps> And I'll look over and I'll be like, what, Duanna? And you'll be like, I love this dress. <laughs> <laughs> that is not them. I mean… That's we, actually happened,
1: P.S. <laughs> I, I wish I remembered the specific dressing question, if it's seared into your memory that way, but uh, I thought you were going to say, you know, and you see something out of the corner of your eye, and suddenly we're laughing about absolutely not yeah. nothing, because we both know what we're laughing at, yeah. but uh,
0: yeah. Um, and you know what they would say? They would say that they are excellent at preparation, so doing all the legwork before they even touch down. So, I mean, all of Megan's outfits, for example, have been matched to the day, the event, you know, the long wear, and they, they would ask the questions like, what if it's windy? How hot will it be? Does this material sweat through? I mean, for, at least for Kate… Um, that would have happened. I'm I'm not sure. Oh, I'm sure that, you know,
1: those questions have to be asked, right? The hairstylists have every product to do with humidity or uh, covering grays or whatever that should show up. Gasp. Did I say that she has grays, but she's a dark-haired woman of a certain age? Of course she does.
0: I mean, there have been times, for example, like Kate has walked on a tarmac and the wind's blown up and maybe like, I don't know, a little bit of her… It, the, the dress has flown up a little bit higher than she would have liked, but I also think that they're understanding about nature. Yeah, I, that's wind at a certain yes. extent. You know, you can't sure work with the elements. But so yeah. it will be interesting though, what I'm saying is, because Kate has done a few of these, it will be interesting to see, being that this is Megan's first major tour, and in particular, it requires like how much wardrobe change probably upwards of 30 outfits, if not more, in like different kinds of climates at different events, how they manage the hair and clothing situation. Because frankly, some of the clothing has missed. I mean, sure. And,
1: you know, the climate is on the opposite calendar, right? This is the resentment. I am one of those people, by the way, I hate all you people who are delighted about
0: fall Everybody's pulling out sweaters and jackets. We've had this argument. Yes. Where? No. Yes, we have. I'm a fall person. I love the layers. This is the exact conversation we had. Yeah, but and we've you're had that person. offline. I'm saying this to the people. Not, uh, Harry and
1: Megan now get to go into summer again and into those things. And yeah, everything from trends to fit to. Uh, what works in certain weather and whatnot is sort of a little bit upended, right? Because what would work in London does not necessarily work here in the same way.
0: Not unlike a press tour for a movie. Yeah, 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 for sure. Right? Like, if you're doing a movie, again, if you're, like, on the Avengers press tour, if you're going to, I don't know how many countries, whirlwind, do you want to save your biggest, flounciest gown for, the, for like, UK? Or do you want to save it for Tokyo? Do you think this would be great for the fans in Shanghai or Beijing and what's the weather they're going to be? How's it going to play? Um, all those things. It's similar to that, and this is what Megan is going to be going into. Now, I will say that for celebrities, we've established this, I think, on our podcast, the work of stylists. The Hollywood Reporter lists the power stylists in the industry every year. We know their names now. They're becoming as famous as the people that they dress, the law roaches you know, the Kate Youngs, um, Petra Flannery, like all these people have names, like their work is known. I will say that, you know, there have been, as I said before, a few stumbles on Megan's part and listen, she's new at this. So she's learning as they go, as she goes along. And I think her team is also learning at the same time. And I'm not sure if, that should be the case. Whether or not, like, you should have client and stylist learning at the same time, or you should have, like, someone with more experience. And, of course, the game is changing all the time because,
1: as we said at the beginning, she's also carrying uh Royal Junior. So things that worked in the planning a couple of weeks or months or whatever ago, not that her team wouldn't know that. Uh God, did they just have giant… Files of non-disclosure agreements at all times, uh, but you know things have to adapt on the fly. So it will be it will be interesting, and it will be interesting to see how all of these elements that we're talking about, all the planning, all the, the first time out, how it matches up with that sort of natural unstudiedness that we have really liked in Harry and Meghan up to now.
0: And you know, for those of you out there who are like, hey, it's just clothes. You know, I get it. It may feel like it's just clothes and it's not consequential or important. But the thing is, is that part of this is performance. Oh, sure. Um, For celebrities, for movie stars, and for royals. They are performing a duty. They are representing the family. And the performance is helped by the costume. Yeah, for sure. And it's not just about being the most
1: stylish and the most fashionable. It's also always about being approachable, being able to fit in with the people and be, I'm always admiring of that, that when, you know, Will and Kate go to a a lacrosse pitch, God, I hope it's a pitch, um, <laughs> that she's allowed to wear such and such a type of jeans and blazer or at an art show, right. she wears this kind of a dress that says, it's a day dress, but I can go to an art gallery in this or whatever it is. So it's also about making them look special and wonderful, but of the people as well.
0: And we've seen, too, that when Kate goes on tours, she makes a point of wearing certain designers. I believe when she went on the Australian tour, she did wear at least once an Australian designer. Um Certain colors representing certain things. When she and Will, uh, William toured Canada, there was like a pin or like a color of outfit, a red. Um, all of those are taken into consideration, are sent ahead of time and accessorized to the whole wardrobe. So given that this is Megan's first rollout and first opportunity to showcase that, I'm very, very interested to see how those elements are going to be worked in, how the countries are going to be honored, um, and how the specific artists are going to be honored from which country. I have to dig up a link that I love, that I
1: know we've talked about on this podcast before, about the subtle messaging of the Queen's brooches. Like when she had to meet Donald Trump, she wore brooches from Barack Obama.
0: Yes. Um,
1: Or uh, there was another time, like, you know, when she met Justin Trudeau, she wore a brooch that was a gift from Canadians, that there's sort of a whole deep history in what she wears. And I would love to include those so that you guys can dig through and admire this as well.
0: And to be and to be fair, like a lot of people, royal experts, claim to dispel those assumptions. Like they were like, no, this not would never have happened. The Queen wouldn't have done this, and like dug up this brooch. There are many people who believe that she did because she's so meticulous about the things that she wears. Somebody's meticulous. Even if it's not her, <laughs>
1: somebody is doing that on purpose. That's right. not by accident. So what overall are you most excited to see coming out of this tour?
0: Well, I mean, you and I both like checklists, a report card. It's, it's true. Right? So yes. why don't we just make a three-point report card checklist, and we can follow up once the tour is over to grade them on whether or not they did certain things well. How about that?
1: Okay, so my biggest category, you know, meets expectations, exceeds expectations, whatever. Yeah. Is going to be cute moments with children. That's a real hallmark. I need to see it again. I need to see the popcorn stealing situation reenacted or something something akin to that. That's on my list.
0: Yeah. Yourself? I agree. And I'll add, how can we add animals to that? They are going to like a zoo… And when Will and Kate went there, like, a couple of years ago with um, Prince George, there was that moment with the Bilby, and I made a joke of him, like, wanting to, like, squeeze the shit out of the poor animal, because he was such a brute. Um, George played at, like, a party. There was, like, a um, playdate. Is that what you call it? Yeah, a playdate. Oh, yeah. And I remember was... when they,
1: like, recruited children who <laughs> would right. threaten him. Sure. So, Yes.
0: Definitely, and especially because um, Harry and Megan are known animal lovers, dog lovers. So yes, will there be moments with children and animals meets expectations or exceeds expectations?
1: Fine. You want her to get, like, kissed by a giraffe. Got it. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. I like that. I'm down with that. Okay, good. Uh, something cute said about food. This mm-hmm. is a thing, right? Uh, a delicacy is served. A thing happens. There's got to be some sort of thing, or he, after politely eating a bite of food, one of them sneaks back for another bite or something. There's got to be a cute moment around food.
0: Yep. Speaking engagements. Harry is uh, going to speak at the Invictus Games, certainly at the opening ceremony and closing ceremony. Megan has a few events that she's doing on her own. So speaking to people, um, public speaking, she's done very well public speaking-wise Because, of course, of her background and experience, she can speak extemporaneously very well. I like the fact that she can speak without notes. Mm -hmm. That's very, like, it's one skill I think that she has over and above her new family members. Most of them have to go with the card, right? Whereas she can really go off the cuff, still hit all her points, so I think that, this tour is a great opportunity for her to showcase that in particular.
1: Okay. I'm going to add to that one for uh, to our final point. We have uh, cute moments with kids and babies. We've mm-hmm. got food stuff and then speaking. I'm going to add as a subcategory in the speaking, making current references or jokes. I went back and read the sermon or address uh, in their wedding Uh from, from the bishop who was, spoke there, who referenced uh, Facebook and Instagram in yeah. the same breath. Reading, well, reading off an iPad. In the chapel. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I really felt like that was a watershed moment for the royals. And so I'm looking for that to continue. I need somebody to make a reference to something uh, to music.ly or music.ly or something that is going to keep them, you know, down with the kids. Maybe they're going to say they watch a lot of The Good Place. Something yeah. that just is keeping things in the mix.
0: And of course, the wardrobe, the fashion. Right. So, so that's four. four. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we'll come back to this at the end of the tour and give them their grade. <laughs> God, you've just hit my pleasure center like
1: <laughs> bossing people around and getting to say how they did. I'm very excited.
0: Okay, so Harry and Meghan are the biggest story, like in Royals. Um, I mean, it's not hard. <laughs> like and look, that's not hard. <laughs> no, and um, the other biggest story that we haven't been able to cover until now, because it has been a big story ever since, really, the Venice Film Festival. No, no, maybe even before that, the release of the trailer, um, *Stars Born*. We are going to be talking about *Stars Born*, do you and I, until. Like February twenty fifth, February twenty fourth is the Oscars. The twenty fifth is the day we post all our articles about the Oscars, and then we'll be done. Stop it! I'm already
1: tired. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not. I don't think that we haven't been able to talk about it until now. Um, But even though I know that the buzz has been building and whatnot, but the story is happening now, right? Like week after week, people are going to see this movie and having moments with it, and things are happening. So. I feel like we are quite right. Uh, we are placed quite correctly yeah. in the continuum of A Star Is Born.
0: Yes, and there is so much great work to talk about in the making of this film, the strategy and the rollout of this film. But one article that caught our eye was about the music and specifically the soundtrack and the sort of the um, the strategy and the coordinated effort behind the release of the soundtrack and really the making of the music. Which kind of surprised me that you latched on to this article because
1: you like a movie musical, obviously, like half of our references are about things that happen, songs from movies that we remember or moments from shows. Can I just
0: tell you something though? Like just as an aside, keep your thought. But I wrote like last week in an article about A Star is Born and I compared it to The Bodyguard and Titanic, like in terms of buzz and Mm -hmm. what it could do. And instead of naming the films, I did this, like, maybe annoying thing where I didn't name the titles of the films, but I just used their characters. So I was like, I was like Rachel Maron and Frank Farmer. Somebody wrote to me and was like, I don't know who Rachel Maron is. And I, I was really upset. I have bad news for you.
1: That means that you're old because that's why that is.
0: So lots of people haven't seen The Bodyguard? I mean, lots of young people. Sure. Who are these young people? Who do you think? Because everybody knows the song. And no. I… <laughs>
1: yeah, I know, but but you know what else happened? That We're going down a trip here, but that movie happened, and that was Whitney Houston. I was a young, young person when The Bodyguard came out. Oh, I was very okay. young. But, no, but a true thing is, I didn't know that it was a Dolly Parton song first. There's been a real Dolly resurgence in the past 10 years. There's that awareness, I think… Whitney Houston is no longer with us, and so she's not talked about the way some legends still are. There aren't people keeping her story alive the way there are with other people. So I'm not as surprised as you
0: might think. Fine. But like I said, I I just need everybody out there, I need you to know, when I say Rachel Marin, you know the bodyguard. Please. I just want you to know that the young people are thinking about Rachel Green. That's who they think of. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, so here is the article. It's in Variety. The title is A Soundtrack is Withheld. How Interscope Gambled and Won, Delaying a Star is Born album. Right. But again, I'm surprised at you a
1: little bit because while you like uh, a a movie soundtrack or songs… You don't always love a cheese factor, and I was not sure that the idea of A Star is Born and the way it rolls out once you see the movie, I'm assuming everybody has now, but I thought you might react a bit negatively to some cheese factors.
0: I I thought so too, but the thing is, the moment I saw that trailer came out in the summer, and they played a snippet of Shallow, they used a snippet of Shallow, in the trailer. I was in. I was like, okay, I know exactly what this movie demands of me. And I'm in. That is smart. When you release a trailer and the trailer tells you, here's what we are. We're going to be real earnest. (laughs) We're going to be schmaltzy. Um, Cheesy is the word that you just used. I was like, okay, we're not going to pretend that It's any more than this, that it's, like, some sort of, like, smug exercise in jazz. And then I saw the full scene around, like, which everybody knows now. The full scene where you finally hear the full shallow. And I was like, holy shit, this is a song. This is a banger.
1: So... If you haven't, or if you've only heard the soundtrack, which is now available, I did ask Siri to play it uh, on the HomePod the other day before going to the movie, just to kind of get in. Uh, Part of your point… I disagree with that decision. Anyway, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's fine. You can disagree with whatever you want. But part of that act is part of the point here. The songs themselves are kind of disembodied unless you see the movie, Right. This yes. is what we were talking about a little bit offline. The Bodyguard, God love it, uh, has a sequence of songs that are bangers in and of themselves for any vocalist worth her salt to be able to belt out yes. while getting ready for school in 1992. But um, but the songs in A Star is Born are kind of essential to the fabric of the show,
0: They're essential to the story and the way it rolls out. More than I would say than a lot of movie musicals in that, okay, let's back up a little bit. One of the things that they talk about in this article is the timing of the release of the soundtrack. They did not want to release the soundtrack ahead of the release of the movie. In the old days or conventionally, they would. They would give you time to know the songs and then you'd go see the movies and it wouldn't hurt you at all. For this movie, they were like, if we release the songs, it's going to be kind of a spoiler and we want people to experience the movie and the songs at the same time, which I completely agreed with. That's a great strategy. The thing is, is that they ended up dropping Shallow, just Shallow, a few days ahead of the release of the movie. And I remember writing, I was like, I'm kind of mad that you guys have this right now. Because I feel like the first time you hear the song in full should be when you're watching the movie. It didn't hurt the movie at all. People are super into Shallow. The soundtrack is number one. It's like, so, I don't know, I think it sold 230,000 copies in the first week. So it it performed really well. It was not a bad decision. But again, they wouldn't have released Shallow weeks ahead. It was just like two days or something like that, or a day. Um, and to your point about having the songs immersed into the storytelling, typically in movie musicals or movies with music, like in The Bodyguard, those songs were standalone pieces. There's, like, no dialogue involving the lyrics of the song or the making of the song. No, because
1: they're not actually telling the story. They're telling the story of a singer or an… Like, it's it's an actress and there are songs… But they're the score, if you will. They're the soundtrack to what's happening, right? Uh, It's like if you walk down the street and you're kind of feeling yourself and you picture a song playing, but you are not actually the one writing that song. No. And A Star is Born requires you to understand that these are the songs that are being written by Jackson and Allie in the moment as the show unfolds. That's right. It is… There's a word that I'm going to misuse a little bit called recitative… Mm -hmm. Uh, in opera and or musical theater where the story is being told through the song at the time, especially if you have a show like, oh gosh, I don't know, Hamilton, uh, there is no dialogue in that show. Everything is happening through song. Mm -hmm. The show is sung through, as Mm -hmm. they say. So you have to listen to all those songs and the characters are brought to life through those. Right. This is how A Star is Born works and it makes it actually a lot closer to being a true musical yeah. or a, gosh, what else would we call it? Not really a tour movie, but almost a docudrama because you're watching it happen yeah. and the songs themselves are characters essentially. Right. And they're being created in the context of the movie.
0: And it's, again, it's a specifically different context than… Any, like, Disney movie where, you know, you have, for example, you talked about Beauty and the Beast earlier. Mm. And yes, there is a scene involving a song, but it doesn't involve the actual construction of the song. Well, no,
1: it's a bit of magical thinking, right? Yes. Oh, I'm having these feelings now, and so I'm going to break into song. There's an argument to be made that that's not true in The Little Mermaid because her voice was kind of a plot point, but otherwise, yeah, it's just people singing because they do, not because making songs and making music is part of their story.
0: So specifically with A Star is Born and Shallow, that song was, quote, written in the movie when the two of them end up in a bar fight, they hit up a grocery store… They buy frozen peas, and then outside in the parking lot, they start talking to each other and getting to know each other and developing an intimacy, and she's like, oh, here's what I just came up with. And he was like, what the fuck? That was amazing. And then she she matches it to, like, a piece of a song that she had written maybe a few days ago and kind of puts it together, and that, the dialogue comes in and in between and around the lyrics of the song, which, which means that the songs were written and then the script was updated. Talk me through that.
1: I mean, yeah, it's interesting because as you're talking, um, I've never written a song in a professional context where… There are songwriters sitting around. You know, you often hear they go down to Nashville or wherever for a few weeks at a time. And essentially, it's a lot like a writer's room, the way we talk about a TV writer's room. People throw out lines and ideas and so forth, and they all come armed with bits of melodies or bits of lyrics or verses or whatnot. Uh, But what's interesting about what you describe is, yeah, which came first, the chicken or the egg, is a really interesting point, right? So… They're writing the script and they say, okay, it's got to be something like this. She's got to see through his tough exterior. What's the line? Uh, Isn't it hard to keep it so… Ain't it
0: hard keeping it so hardcore. Something like that,
1: right? Which is a good line. She's making fun of him and seeing through him and all that kind of thing. So probably Bradley Cooper wrote the script with two other writers. Mm -hmm. And so I would say they probably outlined it to know that the sentiment needed to be there, that it was that idea. Yeah. Oh, you're so hardcore, you're so this or that. Then they go into uh, the studio and create the song, see what works. I would believe in different movies, different ways, but this is Lady Gaga that we're talking about. She's going to be there. She's going to be talking about what's going to work and what's not. He's going to be sitting behind the glass the way you often hear people do and the way he was in the movie going, yeah, that's good. No, that you know, is there something where like, he can correct her or whatnot, then they take that outline and that song and then go and write the exact dialogue for the scene, or more accurately, probably improvise some of that dialogue for the scene to make that seem like what it was, which was a pretty authentic songwriting experience. I defy you to find a, you know, a professional songwriter who's like, that would never happen. I think it does all the time. I think it's probably, there's probably a word for that style of songwriting, of taking things that happened within the day or the moment and putting them into the scenes. If it was a different kind of movie, if it was a different kind of song, Taylor Swift would write about having frozen peas on her hand. You know what I mean? Right. Like it would be a retelling of events. But yeah, everybody would have had to be very involved in each stage of the storytelling in order to make that work.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't just one time, right? Like there's the other song that she talks about when they're in the diner. You know, they go on the bike ride to Arizona, I think it is. That's where he's from. Yep. And they stop in the diner and she opens up a notebook and she's like, here's a song I'm tinkering with. And then that's a song you hear later on. She's in the studio. Yeah, it wasn't that good.
1: I didn't like that song as much. I'm sorry. I didn't love it. But yes, that idea that there's always a notebook happening, that it's going to be about, I think if I remember, that was about kind of, Uh, clinging to the back of his bike and never needing to be anywhere else. And they're, wherever you're going, I'm going with you. I'm probably making that up a bit. But, yeah, that idea is sort of happening in the moment and develops through the movie. And, of course, then it happens again at the end, right? Yeah. This is the most, like, arresting thing and probably the biggest reason to hold back that soundtrack. The final song that Ali sings is is performed posthumously, Yes, right? After Jack has has
0: done the thing. Do you not know? Guys, like, I mean… Oh my God. Okay. Enough now. This is the fourth time this movie has been made. It's a story as old as time. He dies. He doesn't die. He kills himself. That's different. Okay. He dies by suicide. I just want to clarify
1: for those who are grumpy abstainers that, you know, he doesn't die in a car accident.
0: Okay, I, yeah, it's, my frustration is not at you, it's at Spoiler Babies, because again, fourth movie, story as old as time. Yeah, but if it would, but I'm going to argue He will with die every here. time. Yeah, but then why do I go see it if it's going to be the same? Maybe this time is the time that he gets saved. Why would I go see this movie if it was the same because, movie? Because, but look how great the, the telling and the retelling, like it is, a st- uh, we always talk about the same themes, you all, like it's not anything new, they haven't reinvented anything, it's a different way of showing you. Which is where
1: we come back to. He has written a bit of a song. She says to him, show me how you think this goes, and then we fade off and do something else with her weirdo manager or something, and come back a half hour later, and she's performing the song, and he told her how he intended it to be, uh, and we re- and it's a, basically, it's a love song to her yeah. about how she is, yeah. you know, all he's ever going to need and never wants to see anybody else, which he makes true, mm-hmm. I mean,
0: eesh. yeah,
1: but… Again, if that song were out before the movie came out, that's your that's your spoiler right there. I don't but, love that song, by the way. I mean, that's fine, but uh, that's fine. I don't think it's about. I think it would have been a powerful, moving moment regardless. And I think if it had been a real belt,
0: a real and I, <laughs> we've both done that today. Now, I, well, you got one in. <laughs> I had to.
1: If that was the case, I don't think you would be as focused on her pain, right? Mm -hmm. We are, this is not a conversation about his talent, her talent, whatever, because we could talk about the acting and everything else forever. But I think the point here, musically speaking, is keeping that hidden and keeping that song kind of low key allows it to be about the performance of her and her, you know, new stage of life more than it is about... Her vocal prowess.
0: And so would you agree then, even though I had some problems with the film, not a lot, but some, like I don't love it as much as other people do. I like it very much. Mm -hmm. I will say that. But I think this film's greatest strength to me, and I hope maybe to you, is that it is about work. Oh, it's about work, absolutely. This is a work movie. Every…
1: A slight fantasy thing that happens is backed up by a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the arguably the biggest sort of fantasy that happens in in this movie is when she's supposed to go like she drops everything
0: and quits her job, yep. and they're gonna take him to where was he? Phoenix? No, somewhere else. We don't know. Like that is one of the mysteries because she had to get on a plane, but everybody was like, mm, "Wasn't this in L.A. anyway?" Yeah, but he could have been in San Francisco. You got to take a plane. Pretty Woman, top is back. You
1: know. Um, but one of the things that I loved about that whole sequence is that even though it's a fantasy situation, the work of it and the practicality of how it would happen is all the way through. Well, how do they get to the plant with the drivers waiting outside? Well, when they get on the plane, the the plane is on the tarmac. Somebody has called for it. When they get off the plane, somebody is waiting with passes. They walk through the bowels of the venue and then they're backstage and there's 45 people backstage and you can see him looking over and knowing Somebody's giving him the thumbs up. Yes, they got her here. They did the thing that he wanted. It is intimately backstage in a way that I love. You'll also notice, speaking of work, uh, that we never get the shot from the audience. Not once when they are performing Mm -hmm. are we in the audience looking up at Jackson Maine on stage or at Allie on stage. It's always really close to her at the piano or the two of them crossing in front of each other.
0: One of the things I love is well, the only time is, and this is for the purpose of this, is when her dad's watching it back on YouTube. Yeah, and but that's, that's because is, someone from the crowd took that's it. That's an but, audience's yeah.
1: perspective. Yes, yeah. But we never go out there with the camera. No, and they do things that I love, like when you pass somebody on a stage like that, and you can talk to them full voice because yes. if you're not mic'd… Ain't nobody can hear you. Yeah. So you fully can be talking to them. They do a lot of that. They do a lot of what the fuck are we doing? You're changing the show. We what? The the claustrophobia of being under the stage. Yes, I love the work of it, and I love the authenticity of the whole first half. I would say is is a real a, a real ride that I bought every second of.
0: I yeah, right up until like probably. I don't know, 10 minutes after Shallow, like that, shallow then plus ten minutes, to me it's almost a perfect movie. It falls apart for me a little bit after that, but right up until that point, I am all the way in. But you know, spoiler babies aside, I was I
1: was surprised the whole way through. The reactions and the choices and things I I liked, I had questions about, but I liked so We didn't start off trying to talk about this, but the holding back of the soundtrack is partly about creating surprise in a movie that everybody's seen before. Yes. And that, to me, was accomplished because you see it all for the first time.
0: And I understand why, since work is a storyline in the film and the product of the work is the music, holding it back to make it day and date, part of the film's release is really, like, not just a compliment to the film, but it's the essence of it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it helps. I'm the most cynical person on earth, and I won't even watch certain things if I don't like the performer. And I hear myself sitting here talking about Jackson and Ally all the way through, not Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. You know, I it helps you believe in the myth that they are who they say they are. I also have to point out, because it won't fit anywhere else… That her friend, who we see a lot, but who does not actually get to perform, is Anthony Ramos, who originated the roles of uh, John Lawrence and or Philip Hamilton on Broadway in Hamilton. You're welcome. Thank you, Joanna. You know what? I'm not, no, I'm not taking that. There are people
0: who are musical nerds who would be yelling at me if we weren't here to discuss it. I'm loving that we kicked off season three with a Hamilton reference twice, and Pretty Woman, and The Bodyguard. Anyway, the next time you watch A Star is Born, or the first time you watch A Star is Born, watch it through the lens of it being a work movie, through the work and the construction of the music, and see what that does to your experience.
1: And lastly, when we were deciding what we were going to talk about this week, you said, well… There's also the story that I, I have to tell, that I said I was going to tell. Uh, and I have to. And once I discovered what it was, I was like, oh, yeah, no, absolutely, we have to. So without further ado, this is that story.
0: Well, and backstory story, story to the story, when it happened, I said to you, are we saving this for show your work? And you were like, fuck yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. But, you know,
1: things happen. So. We're here.
0: We're here. And this is the story of why um, I didn't love at all my interview with Jake Gyllenhaal at TIFF.
1: That's not quite the way you (laughs) framed it on Instagram, though.
0: Uh,
1: For those who were there back then, so this would have been, what, a month ago to the date? September 10th or 12th or something? You actually wrote, uh, and I think Sasha was with you. Sasha produced me on that red carpet. Yeah, something like, he he couldn't bear me or something (laughs) like that.
0: I think Sasha's words were, like, Jake Gillenall has never hated anyone as much as he, he hates Lainey. So, yeah. And then I think I said I, like, I was subhuman in his eyes. Amazing. Yeah. So, okay. Let's go. The movie is The Sisters Brothers. It's a red carpet. And I just, because I would,
1: I got hung up on this until I didn't. It's about brothers whose last name is Sisters, yes?
0: Correct. Fine. The brothers are played by um, John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix. Right. I have interviewed Jake Gyllenhaal before. He's great and fun. He's super cute. I still like him and I still like his work. Fine.
1: Uh, How big is his role in this movie?
0: I'd say he's, like, he's number three
1: on the call sheet. As one would do. You're not going to show up to promote… A movie where you're the number eight
0: guy. That's right. So it's John C. Riley, Walking Phoenix, The Sisters Brothers, yep. right? And then there's him and Riz Ahmed. And so you are on a
1: red carpet to promote the movie, mm-hmm. which it was having its premiere at TIFF?
0: It World was… premiere? Uh, no, I think it was the North American premiere. I believe it premiered in Venice. Mm-hmm. So he shows up. I had already interviewed a couple of cast members. I was number two on the red carpet. And I could see him… And hear him talking to the reporter in the number one position. And I want to just clarify what that means.
1: Mm -hmm. Often when stars come to a carpet, and you've seen it on TV a million times, they will speak to X number of reporters. Maybe they've agreed on five. Maybe they say they'll speak to everybody. Yeah. But at a certain point, uh, they're going to say, oh, sorry, I'm late. Or the publicist will be like, we got to get them inside. Yeah. And so you stop talking to them. So first or second is better than yes. right at the end.
0: Yes. And here's the thing about Jake Gyllenhaal, and this is a story about work. Jake Gyllenhaal, the, the interviews that have made him famous or that people like watching on YouTube are the ones where he's really, really cute. Like he makes funny noises or calls Ellen on her birthday or he makes fun of his name with a journalist from, I don't know, Germany. Who I will tell you how much you like or liked Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. You
1: once promoted an interview of his about not having his puggle anymore. Like he lost it in a custody yeah. debate or something. And you were still okay with him. For somebody to not have their dog is so anathema to you. And yet you are like, no, he's Jake Gyllenhaal.
0: Yeah. Like he… You know, the ones, that's probably why online, you know, he can be an internet boyfriend because he's so cute in these interviews that have been out there. The thing, though, is behind the scenes with people who are on the circuit and who have to interview him, you know, it's one of those, like, when he's on, he's on, but sometimes if he's off, like, look out. So you'd heard that before? I'd heard that. I had never experienced it, Mm -hmm. but people have told me about it. So he's talking to the reporter in the first position. I'm waiting in the second position. I can already tell that the interview with the person in the number one position is not going great. It's awkward and stilted and Jake just wasn't, like, I could tell that he wasn't feeling it. Right. And I'm just going to interject for the last time. Yes. It's a bloody
1: challenge to, in the space of what is often 45 seconds. That's right. You have to strike up a rapport, Mm -hmm. get something going that is not about you, but also getting them to say something that's cute, that's a soundbite, that's whatever. Yeah. Uh, I've done it many times myself. Yeah. And you need to engage them, but not ask anything that's too long, that they're going to stand there for too long. Yeah. Keep it going. It's a tough task.
0: Yeah. And so his publicist happens to make eye contact with me while I'm waiting for him to wrap up with reporter in the number one position. Yeah. So she's like… Just two questions. He want, We want to do the whole carpet. And I was like, yeah, no problem. I'm just going to ask him about working with John C. Riley in Joaquin Phoenix. And I'm going to ask him about working with Riz. And I'll ask him about Toronto. She, and she's like, he loves Toronto. He's been here so much. Yeah, talk to him about Toronto. So I'm like, I'm at this point, I'm like, okay, I'm in. Mm-hmm. The publicist likes my questions. She likes where I'm going. Even though his interview with the other person might not be going very well, I think I'm good. So he steps up to me. And so the first question I decide to ask him about, because most of his scenes in the film are with Riz Ahmed, Mm -hmm. and they've worked together before, I decide to go for the Riz Ahmed question and, like, something funny about Riz and getting him to talk about what's great about Riz. So I was like hey, so, you know, you're in this movie um, and all of your scenes practically are with Riz Ahmed. You guys have worked together before. Uh, you know, would you would you characterize what you have with him as a bromance? You know, it's a soft question. It's not the most original question. Yeah, but it's not 2020 either. It's, yeah. You're standing outside in the cold. Thank the you. Whole thing. I'm, I'm just trying to get him to talk about Riz. Sure. He... The first thing that comes out of his mouth is, you know, I've never been on a red carpet when I haven't been asked about a bromance. And there's a pause and immediately my heart sinks and I'm like, okay, I fucked up. And so I say, okay, so you just told me I'm unoriginal, sorry. Um, and he's like, no, no, you know, like, uh, it's just, uh, you know, mutual respect, man. Like, you know, we just, it's, it's, it's a taste relationship.
1: Oh, what? Sorry. I'm, <laughs> no, let's be clear. I've mm-hmm. heard this story before. Yeah. I got the whole thing on yeah. text. I heard it on the you phone. You reacted the same way when I said it the first time. Yeah, but a taste thing, like, I mean, yeah. this is maybe I'm hearing new things. That's a, it's not a thing that you say. Yeah. And again, these are, it's not a thing that you say in this kind of interview. Yeah, This is a, if you were interviewing like a theater actor who had never Mm -hmm. done a movie before, that's one thing. But this guy knows how the game is played Mm -hmm. and
0: standing outside the theater is different than inside the actor's studio. Sure. Please continue. So, thank you, Joanna. So, I'm like, okay, well, strike one. Let me try again. He felt it wasn't an original question. I'm… I'm going to own that, and I'm going to keep going. And so he's still talking. He's talking about having his taste relationship with Riz Ahmed. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening. And he's like, so you know what? But the real the real bromance is between the brothers, John and Joaquin. So I'm like, great. I'm going to go for it with John and Joaquin. Um, so I said to him, I just talked to Rebecca Root. Uh, Rebecca Root has a role in the film, a small role, but a critical role. She's amazing in it. And when I talked to her five minutes ago, she had told me that when she was working uh, with John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, that they were so method that she found John warm, just like his character, and Joaquin quite standoffish and aloof. Now, Rebecca Root's in the movie. She just told me this. Did you have the same experience? I thought that was a fair question. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I I, don't even know what that means. What did you want to do in this moment? Well, I wanted to tell him to fuck himself. Right. Like, you know, I wanted to say, hey, but I just asked you a question about the brothers, the real bromance, which is what you told me in your last sentence. And I gave you a question. Why isn't this question good enough? Like, I would have wanted to say that to him. He's not feeling it. He's like, I don't understand. I I, I don't, I, I, you know, whatever. And I was like, Okay, so now I'm scrambling again. I am switching gears again. So I'm like, okay, fine. That doesn't work. Let me go deep diving into thematically what this movie is. Not a red carpet question, P.S. This is a long form fucking New York Times if you want it question. But I will go deep diving into this question. This movie shows such a sensitive, warm relationship between two brothers in a Western setting that seems counter to the toxic masculinity that typically we see in a Western? Toxic masculinity has been something that we have been interrogating in our culture. Do you think that this is one of the messages, one of the takeaways from the Sisters Brothers? So it's Westerns. What is your, what is your Duanna perception of what Westerns are? I mean, do men sit around like singing and holding hands? <laughs> no, I haven't seen
1: this movie, but no, you know what I think. I'm a stereotype where this is concerned. I think about hats and bu- bu- hats and guns and belt buckles, bang bang, and tumbleweeds.
0: Yes, shoot them up, bang bang, tough guys. Also tumbleweeds. And <laughs> also tumbleweeds. And this is what the film does. Like, it's a very, it's a beautiful relationship between these brothers. Like, caring and tender. Okay, but that's not the point. Okay, so I give him a question where maybe he can talk to me about, yeah, like, thematically… Because I just want to be clear here. Let's
1: forget about the movie and what it's about. Yeah. Okay, because that's fine, and I know you, and I'm sure your questions were great. But the point is, you're trying to get something he's going to grasp onto. Yes.
0: Yes, I'm, I'm switching gears for the third time. Bromance didn't work. As- actually asking about working with your two co-stars didn't work. Fine. Let's because go into I the theme. I just want to be clear, and forgive me from
1: for being kindergarten here, but had you had two minutes of hilarious banter all about Riz Ahmed, that would have been great. Oh. But you don't have to ask all the questions you no. say you're going to ask. You don't have to include no. all the themes you say you're going to, whatever. It's just about having a moment when it's a red carpet. Yes. And so when you say you switch gears for the third time, you're trying to get some purchase on this slippery… Yeah. Yeah,
0: I'm trying to get some purchase so that I can send you on your way. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, that I don't have to take up any more of your time. Right. So, he says, uh, in the history of Westerns, there's always been men who are sensitive. And that's not, uh, no. I don't know. (laughs) Now, now set the scene for me. I am dying at this point. No, I'm dead. Like, he's… I'm dying. I've, like, lost any will to live. In my experience, when your producer is with you on the red carpet, you can't
1: actually make eye contact. You're no. are squashed in so much that yeah. they are, uh, you know, almost behind you or mm-hmm. kitty corner to your eye, kind yeah. of. So you can't see Sasha at this moment. Oh, I can.
0: But I can feel Sasha dying with me. Of course. And probably digging her fingers into your grits. I can feel Sasha sweating. And I'm sweating. Right. Our sweat at this point is mingling together. We are sweating the same amount. We are so, like, mortified and like, fuck, what did I do? Like, and why I'm, can't I be okay? Like, why can't I get anything right tonight?
1: And reporter number one, who just finished their interview, I'm sure… Is listening. Of course. Yes. And no, and kind of going,
0: yeah, that's what it was like over here. Right. Or saying, oh, shit, I thought mine was bad. She is… <laughs> Flaming out, like, even worse than I did.
1: And all of this is taking place over the course of, I'm going to conservatively say, 35 seconds. I would
0: say about 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. We're at the 90-second mark here. Or, like, the 60, like 70-second mark. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, fuck. Well, I'll just go to my Toronto question. So I say, you know what, Jake? Um, you're back here in Toronto. You've worked here so many times. You're so, like, you know, obviously you're familiar with it. Tell me what you like doing in Toronto. Tell me where you would go if someone asked you, what what should I do in Toronto? What would your recommendations be? Uh, Well, I always say, like, if you want to know about Toronto, you should just ask someone who's from Toronto. Like, why are you asking me? I'm not from Toronto.
1: Did he make eye contact? Yeah. While he was saying that? Yes.
0: Was he really confused about why you were asking the question? Uh, No. What was he? He was like… I don't want to answer this question. You're a fucking idiot. He That's was. That's how I felt. That's he was how yeah. being rude.
1: Yes, he was trying to
0: shut you down. Correct is your feeling. He was like, "I'm not gonna t-. like." He was like, I- "Why should I tell you? I don't know." What a dumb thing to ask me. This doesn't happen,
1: you guys. Like this, maybe happens if you have a. I don't know if you have a a movie about like some great social ill and somebody comes in and asks if there was a lot of blow at the after party, maybe then if somebody said that on the red carpet for Schindler's List, maybe then there would be this kind of reaction. But this doesn't happen. This is really rare and weird. And you know this even in the moment when
0: you're there. So at this point, I'd had enough. And something else kicked in where I was like, this is going so bad on camera. I'm just going to let the person watching on the other side know that I know it's going bad and call it and name it what it is.
1: Well, that's what I'm interested in because you went from sort of feeling responsible for fixing it to,
0: to not, to wanting to point out what was happening. Yeah. I wanted to just name it. I wanted to name it what it was, which was a terrible interview. So I was like, well… But first, I was like, when he said to me, like, why are you even asking me this? I was like, your publicist told me to. Because remember, I had the conversation with her. She was like, ask him about Toronto. So she's behind me at this point. I can't see her. And he's like, really? She told you? She told you to ask me that? And I was like, yes. I asked her. I said, you know, I'm gonna talk to him about Toronto. She said you really loved it here, and I was like, great. I'm gonna ask him about Toronto. She's like, her, that lady right there. Are you sure that was the one you were talking to? Because she's denying it. She says no. So she's fucking selling me out behind me. Well, or she's terrified. Like to go back to the to the what did you call them? Clipboard warriors. Clipboard soldiers. Or, yeah.
1: Like. They are – nobody is sergeants Clipboard sergeants. Nobody is more terrified of the celebrity than the person who is currently handling the celebrity. Because if she did tell you that and she admits to it, you're done with him in two minutes with your terrible interview, but she has to be with him all night. So whether she did or didn't, she's saying, no, I I would never.
0: So at that point, I was like, okay, Jake, I say this on camera. I was like, I – I'm really sorry. This is the worst interview ever. You hate it. And I'm so sorry that I'm so hateful. Um, And now he's not, he's shaking his head. He's like, no, no hate, no hate. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm going to say goodbye to you. Thank you very much. Um, And I'm sure your night can only get better from here. And he... And he laughed. um, And he was like, well... And he was kind of like, no okay, well, sure, and then went on to the next person. Right. So he was pretending like it hadn't just happened. He was pretending like maybe I could have taken it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um. Again, nobody in my vicinity perceived it any different way. Right. Like it was me, Sasha, who again wanted to die. Sasha has, the, as we know, the lowest threshold of like… Embarrassment, conflict, yeah, and yeah. she she, she wanted about, she was like, Yeah, he hated you. Mm-hmm. And um, but listen, from a work perspective, this is what I'm saying. It was terrible. My first question didn't go off right. I tried to redirect, he wasn't feeling it. At a certain point at work, when nothing you do is right, what do you do? In my case, I chose to just call it. What's
1: interesting about it is uh, that I hear you, yeah, like when you're having a terrible time, you just have to say at a certain point, like, I am having a terrible time. I can't crack this. You do the thing, yeah. you ask for help. It doesn't make you weak or bad. It It's clearly like you're like, here's what I ran up against. Yeah. But I'm curious about how you felt or when you made that mental pivot. Were you like… Were you done and over it by the time it was
0: wrapped? I will say this: I don't think that I would have done that earlier in my career. Right. I would have just continued flailing. We've played it back. Like my colleagues have played this back, um, and they've all said, "Like, oh fuck, she's still going. She is still <laughs> trying." I would have given up two questions ago. Like they would have wrapped that. Like, thank you very much. Goodbye but they were like well, you kept going you kept trying and i was like i i like that's just what i do i just kept on trying to look for a solution i would have in like earlier in my career i would have kept looking for a solution and when i still couldn't find one i would have just beat myself up i wouldn't have called it what it was and i would have just said okay thanks have a good night and i would have allowed him to make me feel bad do you know I know know exactly what you mean. Yeah. In In that moment, I have had a long time to think about it. I have had time to discuss it with my colleagues. We're laughing about it right now, but on a serious level, he made a choice that night in the answering of those questions to make me feel bad, or at least to make me feel stupid.
1: Right. And the thing here that is different and yet similar to lots of other work situations is that there's a power differential. You need a thing, he knows that you need a thing, and that you can't say, or he thinks you can't Mm -hmm. say, hey, you're being a dick. Snap out of it. Yeah. Uh, So it's a a power situation that you're walking into. Yes. And that's kind of what you're dealing with when you say, he made me feel stupid or poorly.
0: That was my interpretation of it through my however many attempts to give him a question that he would have been happy to answer. I was trying you could see me trying. Like, if I'm a, Like, I'm not a sweater, like, in that, like, a visible pouring… No, you don't perspire. It's annoying. I, I perspire in places you can't see. <laughs> and <laughs> if I did, though, like, it would have been streaming water down my face. You could… It was a visible effort. Um, and he, in, in that sense, he could see it. I know he could see it. And he just deliberately, in my opinion was not there to help me do my job. And is that his job to help me do my job? I think that if you were to ask someone in his position… No, no, no. Stop
1: prevaricating because you're trying to be nice. No. Yes, it's his job. We know this. It's an ecosystem. We talk about this all the time. He does the movie. Then he gives you the quote. You put it on TV and promote the movie. It's a circle and everybody knows how it works. Why he chooses to act that way on a day and like all the usual caveats, maybe he was having a bad day, maybe a million things, maybe a whatever, but you know, all the usual caveats apply, but he gets to still be that guy because he's Jake Gyllenhaal and he knows that he's essentially untouchable in this moment.
0: Well, yeah, and that brings me back to what you just mentioned about power. In that situation, I know you're out there, fans of Jake Gyllenhaal, and it is hard, right? Like, and... You are welcome to be like, well, Lainey, your questions were just super, let's just move on. I love Jake. Great. In that situation, though, there is no way that the person on my side of the rope can make a person on that side of the rope hurt. That's where the power is. It is a, like, to have this conversation, you accept that as fact. They are there after people on my side of the rope have been waiting for hours. Number one, I've already been waiting for hours. I wait for hours to get two minutes with you Mm -hmm. so that I can take it back to my workplace. What you say to me doesn't affect the rest of your night, but what you say to me affects the rest of my night and maybe more. That's where all the power is. And in that moment, the way he used his power was not to my advantage or benefit And the only takeaway I could get from it was an experience where I just said, as as I said, earlier in my career, I would not have known to name it. In that, like, but in that moment, somehow, I found the experience or maturity in my job to name it and just to say, okay, well, this was the worst interview ever of my career. And uh, you hated it. It was hateful to you. Have a better night. I'm sure you will. Yeah, and you know, what I love about that is not just the naming, but
1: without turning the podcast into more therapy than it already is, you found your limit. There is a limit at which you will no longer carry on the nicety of pretending everything's fine, and he found it. He may have found it two questions ago, um, and that was the limit that you found, and it's kind of exciting in a way, right, to be like, okay, yeah, that's the thing I won't put up with, and I'll, I'll call it out on television. And, more importantly, live to tell the tale.
0: It's funny because we, yes, we here, hopefully, show your work, we want to talk about celebrities, of course, in the context of work and relate it to other pieces of the work that you all are doing out there and what you can take away from it. And one of the things that I put together through the festival is what happened the next day in relation to what happened with Jake. You're going to have wins at your job, and you're going to have losses. I had a loss that night, like a big fucking loss on a Saturday night at TIFF. And I left saying, well, shit, like that wasn't my night. Um, The next day, I interviewed Maria Bello. And it was not on a red carpet. I had 10 minutes with her. So to be fair to Jake, it was a different setting. And I had a great interview with her. And at the end of the interview, she leans over and she says, you are an outstanding interviewer. You're going to have a big career. No, you didn't tell me this. And in the back of my mind, number one, my first thought was, oh, Maria Bella, how old do you think I am? Because she spoke to me like it was the beginning of my career, which was fun, nice. Like, it was nice to hear. But secondly, I thought to myself, well, this is what you take away from your job. One day you're going to fuck up a presentation Or your boss is going to hate the spreadsheet you put together or whatever. And hopefully at your job, you get another chance the next day to not prove it to anybody else, but prove it to yourself.
1: But, you know, it's… I've always talked with a friend of mine about how a good job gives you a lot of at-bats. No matter what the job is… Love it. Yep. The… Experience is if you only get one thing a year to do Mm -hmm. and it doesn't go well, that stays with you all year. It's awful. It haunts your dreams. If you have to get up the next morning Mm -hmm. and go do something else and ask somebody else some questions with that monkey on your back, then you have a chance to shake it off that much sooner to pivot in different situations to be like, oh, and to put it behind you and further and further behind you. More and more. I think no matter what you do, if your job has a lot of opportunities for you to have the at-bat to try and fail, try and fail differently, try and fail upward. I always like the word failure because it teaches you more things. Yep. Um, Then you are going to recover that much faster and have a long
0: and excellent career. So I guess the whole point of this story, other than gossip, um, but gossip is good. Gossip is always
1: good, especially when it's things that, you know, maybe we are done keeping
0: secrets about. Yep. Is to say, if you can, create those at-bats at work. Like, you just said the greatest thing is to have a job where it gives you lots of Mm at-bats. If it doesn't,
1: create them. Create them and go find them and keep giving yourself situations where you get to change the story, right? The next time you have an interview, an at-bat, a whatever, then it's not, oh, remember that time that it was kind of awkward and that thing happened? It's, remember that time that the day after a devastating loss, somebody came and hit a grand slam? I don't want to talk about how we're reaching the end of my sports metaphors, (laughs) but, you know, it's, it's all about changing the story for yourself, Because then you get to change it for other people. Absolutely.
0: So with that in mind, it's a new season of Show Your Work. Hopefully, all of you will have lots and lots of at-bats. We have a new at-bat next week. Uh We want to know about
1: yours. Tell us what you think, what you liked, what you're working on, what you want to hear more about.
0: And if you're out there, Jake Gyllenhaal, you'll probably never interview with me ever again. But I will keep seeing your movies. He really is a great actor, and he's really good in this movie.
1: Sure. Uh, (laughs) uh, We will debate that and many other things on season three. I want to debate or not how exciting our new podcast artwork is. Uh, Don't know if you've seen it pop up on your phone, on your podcast feed. I am delighted with our incredible new image, Uh, and they were created by… At Paco May, uh, whose incredible work you can find on Instagram. Thank you so much, Paco. We love it. And we love looking like, uh, you know, kind of the most beautiful and hilarious versions of our (laughs) line-drawn selves at all times. Let us know what you think. Hit us up in all the usual ways. We like
0: email. We like Instagram. We like tweets. Definitely check out Paco's work showing his work on Instagram, again, at Paco May. Yep, and beautiful
1: celebrity drawings that we are incredibly lucky to be in the same company
0: slash uh, email folder as. And send us all your comments, send us all your suggestions at the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, email. We'll be back next week.
1: Bye. See you next time.